Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. You can turn there with me. Um, we are entering the section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus starts teaching through um, by the use of parables. And parables are, are if you've studied the parables, you kind of know this already, but they're earthly stories that come alongside a heavenly reality or a kingdom reality. And um, some of the parables are, are really easy to understand, and some of them are not as easy to understand. And so uh, the one that we're going to be looking at this morning is probably the clearest passage that describes what happens when people hear God's Word along with their reception and their response. And this is one of the, the most difficult things we struggle with sometimes as Christians and as pastors is to know, you know, what, what, what does this mean when somebody hears the gospel and, and when they receive it? You know, what's going on here? Are they a Christian? Um, are they just going through a dry spell if they walk away? Were they never really a Christian? You know, these are the things we wrestle with, especially with, <clears throat> with our loved ones and people that we care about. I think we've all known people at times that have shown up, um, made some kind of maybe a profession of faith, come to church, and then disappeared. What does that mean? Um, it can be really difficult to make sense of this kind of stuff, and especially, like I said, if it's a son or a daughter or a close friend or something like that. I've got a couple of kids that, that yeah, I don't know. And, and this passage uh, kind of helps us to make sense of what's going on and, and hopefully come to the right conclusion about where they stand because when we understand where somebody is, we have a better opportunity of being able to minister to them properly. So that's kind of what we're looking at today. Now, this doesn't give us the definitive answer as far as where people stand, where every individual stands, but it gives us a broad framework to understand these things by. So <clears throat> with that in mind, we're going to look uh, at verses 1 through 9 first. And it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat behind this, or beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. Now, that, if, you're not, uh, if you're more of a uh, you know, city folk than a country folk, you might think, what does that mean? That means a farmer went out to plant seeds. All right. So the idea is, if you were to walk out front right now, you would see different types of ground out there. There's some grass, there's some dirt, there's some asphalt, there's some concrete. If you were to take a handful of seeds and throw them out front, they would land in various places, and based upon where they land, different things would happen. That's what he's, he's going to say. And spoiler alert, uh, the seed in verse 19, it tells us that it represents the word of the kingdom or the word of God. And this is important. Uh, of course, the central message of God's word is the gospel, which is the message of Jesus' work on behalf of sinners that leads to conversion or being born again. But the parable is talking about God's word just in general as well. So this is what he describes. It's starting in verse 4. <clears throat> as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, he who has ears, let him hear. There's a really bad corn joke in here that I could go with, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> Just avoid that. So after giving in this parable in verse 10, he tells, uh, says that the disciples came to him and said, uh, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? And that's a great question. 
Um, why doesn't Jesus just speak plainly in a way that everybody can understand? Why does he reveal it to some and conceal it to others? And the good news is we're going to answer that question. The bad news is it's not till next week because uh, the way the parables work is Jesus tells the parable and then he explains it. And in between there, he gives the answer to that question. And so next week, we're going to dive into that. We thought it deserved its own time and own, you know, its own attention. So, um, so stay tuned. That's like, a, remember when you were a kid and it was like you'd watch a, a show and it would say, you know, to be continued? Well, come back next week and you'll hear more. <clears throat> so now we jump down to verse 18 and we're going to see Jesus explaining the parable where he says, uh, hear the words, or hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for the so, uh, what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. So we've already talked about what the seed represents uh, in the parable, the word of God, which includes the good news about Jesus. What about the sower? Who is, who is the sower in this parable? <clears throat> I would say it could be referring to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, or any and all gospel workers. When I was taking tests in school and it was multiple choice and there was a choice for all of the above, I like to pick that one because it was right a lot. I think all of the above works here. Uh, anybody that's involved in spreading the gospel can be the sower. So we have four soils, four responses, and four results. Uh, the soils Jesus describes are a hardened path, rocky ground, thorny ground, and finally good soil. And this basically describes the, a person's reception or their heart towards God's word in general, but specifically to the gospel. So let's talk about the hard heart first, the hard path. The text says that the, they hear the word, but they don't understand it. And, and this could mean that they don't grasp it or that they don't see a need for it. And I think this, this describes probably the, the majority of people uh, in the world today and, and that we, we come across, their heart is hard towards the things of God because they don't really see their need for it. Uh, they may be nice about it. They may be kind of mocking or hostile about it. You, you know, it, it. There's a gamut of these people. So they might say, that's great for you. You know, good for you. Enjoy that. They might mock you and, and call you names and say you're, you're foolish and you're stupid and you're weak. We see if you go on to like, you know, watch a, an article about Christianity and look at the, the comments that ensue afterwards, you'll see all of these things kind of in there. So um, when the seeds of God come to this person, though, basically it's, it's described that they quickly bounce off. And then we're told that the enemy swoops in like a bird to quickly snatch these seeds away. Luke's account says the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. That's pretty specific. The enemy doesn't want you to believe and be saved. So he comes in as quickly as he can to remove these things. It's good to know that we have an enemy, right? And that enemy will use all means necessary to snatch truth away from us. He doesn't want us to, to see it. So he's going to do the best he can to make it sound ridiculous and, and foolish and to make you, you know, feel weak for even considering these things. 
He'll use other people to make you feel the same way, to make you feel stupid and ridiculous and, 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 and make you embarrassed to even accept this as truth. <clears throat> because the truth is the quicker he can get the seeds away from you, the better. Because he understands that God's word is powerful and it's transformative and it can affect somebody's life. If it, if it gets in. So he's like, you know, sitting out there with a racket, just trying to bat these seeds away as fast as he can so that we don't, we don't believe. And don't be naive enough to think that this is only non-believers that he tries to do this with. He wants to keep the word away from you and you away from the word because that is the power that transforms us as Christians. And he's good at it, right? It's, it's funny how this can be. You, you go to read the word and how many things pop up that try to distract? He's like the master distractor. It's like, oh, here's something shiny over here. Let's go look at this for a minute. And you're like, okay, let's go do that. We're, we're quick to just, we don't value God's word enough. We're told that it's a lamp for our, for our path, and a light for our path and a lamp for our feet. It helps us to navigate this world. It helps to encourage us. It helps us to have perspective. We need God's word in our life. No wonder the enemy wants to snuff it out, right? So, for the hard-hearted that we know among us, the people that have just absolutely rejected the gospel, um, pray for them. Pray that, they, that God would change their heart. Pray that it would soften and become receptive. And keep sending seeds their way, right? We should be like on a, you know, just keep, keep the seeds just coming at them as, as often as we can. Because God can crack the toughest nut. I should hear some amens because there's some people in this room that can, can say, that was me. I was a tough nut. Nobody thought that I was going to believe. And yet God can do that, can't he? So I'm proof of that. I think some of you guys are proof of that. So pray in faith that God would change hearts. The next surface that Jesus describes is the rocky soil. And I would call this the shallow heart. <clears throat> These are people that hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. And this sounds kind of promising. We hear this and we get excited. It's like, oh, they, they received it with joy. You know, yeah, this is good. But I can think of several times over the years that I've seen this happen uh, and gotten very hopeful. But then after a little while, you, you start to see the enthusiasm wane, the attendance drop off, uh, the joy kind of subsides, and then the person disappears. And that's because their acceptance, according to this parable, was very shallow and superficial. It had no roots. So verse 21 says, he had, he had no root in himself. He endured for just a little while. And when tribulation and persecution came, they immediately fell away. And it says tribulation and persecution on account of the word. Okay? This is, this is important because we've watched this play out in, in our country and in our churches recently. There was a time when there was not a cost to align yourself with Christ and his word. You could say you were a Christian. There was no persecution that would come your way. There was no, you know, nothing on account of the word that was going to happen. Now, if you make a stand as a Christian and say, I'm a follower of Christ and I'm a follower of his word, you're going to get heat for it. You're going to see people aren't going to like that. They're going to treat you differently. And so that's why we're seeing so many people fall away now. There's a cost involved and they didn't count the cost. They came in thinking this will be great. I'll just do this. The minute the cost shows up, the minute they go. <clears throat> Ultimately, what they determine at this point, by the way, is that God's not worth it. Um, kind of let you know where their priorities maybe lie and what's most important to them. I want you to hear that. Is Jesus worth it? They, they've, they've weighed this out and they've said Jesus isn't worth it. When I hear that, it makes me sick to my stomach a little bit. Jesus isn't worth it. That's what they're saying right? How much is Jesus worth to you? 
Everything is the right answer. Amen. We're only beginning to see the tribulation and the persecution that most of the church has, has endured all along. This is just now starting to come. Will it drive you away from Jesus or will it drive you closer to him? Be, re- be ready to answer that question, brothers and sisters, because it's coming. We see the same dilemma in the third soil with this counting the cost thing. And I would call this one the strangled heart. Uh, verse 22 says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This person also hears the word. They see the benefit in receiving it until they weigh the options. Right? So they do that scale thing. Right? Okay, let's put God over here on the scale and then everything that else that's important to me, and let's really see where we go. And well, they, they, they basically put God on one side and everything the world has to offer on the other side, and they also determine God's not worth it. So Jesus describes what causes them to reject the, the, the Lord. He says that it's the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world. Mark's gospel adds one more thing. He just says the, des- the desire for other things. And I think we can all understand this. It's not necessarily that they don't want God. They just don't want to miss out on what the world has to offer. There's so many other things they want, and, and it seems like God might get in the way of that. And the minute that God might get in the way of those things or their happiness, guess which one goes? God does. They'll pick happiness. And I can't tell you how many times we've seen this play out. That, you know, God's word is so clear on so many things. And, and we'll, we'll preach that word to people and say, well, this is what God's word says. Do you agree? And they'll say, yes, but, but I want to be happy. And so I'm going to go do these other things. And it's like, but God's word will lead you towards it. No, 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 this, this is the stuff I want to go do. And they'll, they'll go do the things that the world is offering. And it's really frustrating uh, because they'll do this and then they'll also still pretend to be in good standing with God. You know, someday I'll stand before him and he'll understand. He'll just, he'll, he'll just pat me on the back because he's loving and he's accepting and he's merciful and I'm not that bad. That's the kind of thing that I, that I see in here. And it's like, no, you could be wrong about, I mean, God is loving and merciful, but, but what if you're wrong? What if, you, what if you've missed out on everything here? <clears throat> We're living in a time when self-love, self-worth, self-care is championed as king. And we're told that that's your path to happiness. If you truly want to find happiness, this is how you do it. It's all about you being the best version of you, on and on and on it goes. But what did Jesus model for us? What did he teach? You know, I mean, I think it's good to, you know, to have a good perspective on, your, on yourself and stuff. But, but Jesus modeled self-denial. He modeled selflessness. And in fact, in Matthew 16, coming up in, in a few chapters, Jesus says this to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What? That doesn't sound right. No, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Well, that doesn't sound fun. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And this is what you want to tell these people. You're banking on trying to find happiness with all this stuff, but you might forfeit your soul. The Bible says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If you only want God for his stuff, right, and you don't actually want God, it'll be easier for you to see the value in the other things and not in God. And that's what it comes down to. I mean, we get God. That's, that's who we get. That's the best part. Is Christ your treasure? 
Does anything else compare to him? Are you willing to lose him to gain something else? You've got to think about those questions because this is what it's talking about. Now, the last parable or the last soil in the parable is the receptive heart. In verse 23, it says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit. And then it talks about the yield. And then um, it says basically that the person hears the word and understands the word. And Mark's gospel adds, accepts it. So hears, understands, receives. Right? That's the difference. Now, we need to remember again that um, this is all of God's word. It definitely includes the gospel, but I think sometimes we only think about the gospel, but this is talking about our reception to God's word. Lots of people will accept Christ if it means getting into heaven, but then they're completely you know, willing to ignore the rest of the Bible and the teachings of God's word, and that's a problem. If, if you know, Somebody one time told me, um, sheep like sheep food. They think it tastes good. They like it. It's goats, not so much. They don't like sheep food. Um, but sheep see the nutritional value in sheep food, which is, the, which is the Bible, right? God's Word. It's extremely satisfying. Even there's times when it's difficult, but it, but it always nourishes us. It always benefits us. But if you have no taste for God's Word, if you have no taste for sheep food, it might mean that you're not a sheep, right? That's a big deal. So if you say you want to follow Christ, but you want nothing to do with his word, nothing to do with his teachings, something's wrong. Something's amiss. Now, according to the parable, the way that we know that something has actually taken root, it's because fruitfulness has happened over time, which implies that we are being conformed to God's word. We're being conformed to his image through his word, transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what his word does for us. When God's word gets into our lives, it washes over us, it changes us, it changes our desires. You know, it, it, it just, it, it's, it's weird to me that stuff that didn't bother me at all before becoming a Christian started to bother me. Why did that happen? God's word started to transform my mind through his spirit, through all these things. I understand that. Things that I hated before, I didn't want to do at all, like go to church. All of a sudden, I wanted to start doing those things. How does that work? What goes, what's happening here? And this is exactly what it is. It's evidence that God's Spirit is within us and that, that we've get, received a new heart that has different desires than it had before. <clears throat> so Luke 8.15 says, as for, what, as for the good soil, um, basically um, they, will, they will hold fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So, so this is talking about lasting fruit, that continues year after year. Not perfection, not sinfulness, but fruitfulness over time. That's the yield he's talking about. Jesus says, in, you know, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. That's an unmistakable amount of fruit. If you plant something and you get 30 times, you know, what you expected, you can't miss that. You, you know, that's a pretty good, no, that's, that's huge. 60, what are you talking about? A hundred? So this is, it's meant to be unmistakable. If Christ is in you, you shouldn't miss it. <laughs> It should be unmistakable. And, and I think um, this is something that we don't pay attention to much. So we've got four soils, four responses, and four results. I think everybody agrees that the first soil, the first scenario, is talking about a non-Christian, somebody who's rejected the message and is not saved. But people debate about the, two, the middle two soils. What's going on with these two? Because there appears to be a period of acceptance, uh, maybe, maybe a, a period of, of shallow belief even, but I would argue that at best, 
It's a superficial acceptance, a superficial belief, and that they aren't talking about born-again believers. We're told that the second one falls away and that the third one bears no fruit, and that doesn't describe a Christian. Um, they ultimately end up without Christ. And I think we've all run into people like this. I kind of I call them dabblers for Jesus. I don't know if you've ever run into people like this. That um, There used to be a bumper sticker that drove me crazy. Uh, it said, try Jesus. Do you guys remember this one? Just try Jesus. And it, it's like he's a, a supplement pill or something. Like people say, you know, you know, ginkgo biloba, you know, just try it. It might, it works for some people, might work for you. Maybe it'll enhance your life a little bit. Just, just try. It's like, that, it's, it's kind of funny, but, you know, people are willing to dip their toe in the water a little bit just to see what happens if they think they're going to benefit from it. Especially if they think that their life's going to prosper or become better if they, if they include Jesus into it. Of course, they'll try that. So this try Jesus idea, I see where it comes from. But again, as soon as difficulty shows up or somebody says something about self-denial, they're going to bow out quickly. And that's, there's no desperation for Jesus to be their Lord. That's what we're seeing. They don't understand their true predicament. They don't understand that their sin is separated them from God and that they should be desperate over this. The consequences of it, they should be desperate over that. And they're not, they're not at all because they don't get it. So it's again, nobody's going to run to the emergency room if they don't know that they're sick. They're not desperate for medical attention. They're not going to go there. And nobody's going to run to Jesus if they're not desperate for a Savior. But I believe the fourth soil is that person. They understand this. They, they understand their sin. They understand their predicament. And they've run to Jesus as the solution. So I think this is the only one that's a Christian. I think the others have gotten close to the shore, maybe dipped their, their foot in the water a little bit. But the fourth one is the only one who has just dove in completely. And I, well, I couldn't help but think about Peter. Do you remember when Peter went back to fishing after Jesus was risen? He's on the shore. He sees Jesus in the boat. What did he do? He got to Jesus as fast as he could. He wasn't just going to, you know, he didn't wait for the boat. He, he threw himself into the water because he was desperate to get to Jesus. This is what we're talking about. I have to get to Jesus now. Nothing else will get in the way of that. That's the fourth soil. Now, of course, we're not the ones who get to determine, like, you know, who, who's which soil. Okay, you're a one, you're a two, you might be a three, I think you're a four. We don't, we don't get to do that. That's probably not our, our job. That's, we put that in God's inbox. He alone can do that. <clears throat> but the things we've looked at, they do tell the general story of what we can expect. Not the entire story. It doesn't tell us right down to the individual what's going on, but we get a broad picture. We don't know what's going to happen with people. The story's not done being written. There's a lot of people in my life that I wonder about right now, but I know that could all turn around. And so we, we always want to be hopeful. But basically, it's really important to pay attention to what Jesus is teaching here because I see two really big problems happening today. The first one is this. There are way too many people out there who think there are Christians when they're not. The second problem I see is there are way too many Christians who are affirming that belief in those people by, by pretending that they're Christians when they're not. And both of those things are a big problem. All right? We are way too quick sometimes to assume somebody else is a believer and we, because, because we're so hopeful. So you'll hear about a celebrity that's come to Christ, and you're like, oh, I can't believe my favorite celebrity or sports figure. They became a Christian. Maybe. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. We also don't want to come across as judgmental. So we, we do that same thing where we, we, you know, maybe we shouldn't say they're not a Christian yet. But, but think about what we're doing if we're reinforcing a false belief that somebody knows Jesus when they don't. 
Think about what's at stake here eternally for them if we give them that, that hope when it's not there. It's funny because, you know, I'm going to get a little controversial. Not too bad, I don't think. I'm not going to say it completely, but you'll know what I'm talking about. We're living in a time um, when we get upset when people try to force, force us to kind of go along with their delusion, right? Their, their, their delusional way of thinking. People are doing things, saying things that we're going, that's crazy. Oh, no, you need to pretend you go right along with it. Don't notice the craziness, just accept it. But in some ways, we're doing the same thing when we do this with people who claim to be Christians. We're going along with their delusion when maybe we need to be like, hey, wait a second, maybe, maybe something's wrong here. And we need to be willing to say that. And there's two reasons that we, we tend to go along with this delusion. One is because we can't accept the alternative. If you love somebody and, and, and you are desperate for them to know Christ because you don't want them to, to end up in hell, you will believe it just because you can't accept the alternative, Right? So we do that. We'll go along with the delusion. The other reason we do it is because it gets us out of evangelizing, quite frankly. Like, okay, if I just, if I just act like they're Christians, I don't need to share the gospel. So yeah, that's great. Okay, I'm out. That, those are both problems. Now, I will just say as a quick side note in, in regards to this idea of the delusion of accepting this idea, this is applying to the living, okay? I know a lot of people right now who have loved ones who have passed on, and we don't know what's happened. But I would say have hope that they heard the gospel, have hope that they met Jesus at some point. That's a proper hope to have. My grandpa was not a Christian. I sat in a backyard at Pastor David Thompson's house and watched him hear the gospel from a faithful brother that shared the, the Lord with him. My grandpa heard the gospel. I don't know what happened to after that, but I know he heard it. And my hope right now is that I'm going to see Papa Sorry, get in heaven. That's my hope. And don't take that from me. Right? You should have that same hope. But if you've got somebody that's alive right now that you don't think knows, now's the time to have that conversation. Make sure they know. Make, make sure of it if you can. Let it be your motivation to, to go in deeper with them. Because we aren't doing any favors to people when we ignore the fact that they may not know Jesus at all and we pretend like they do. I can't think of anything more tragic than somebody thinking they're heaven-bound. You know? And then they end up in hell. And, and, and I always picture them looking at me. I don't know why I do that. Like, just look at me going, why didn't you say anything? I don't know. I didn't want to be judgy. I mean, they're not going to care at that point if you were a little judgy. Say something. All right. I wish that I had the ability to know who was saved and who wasn't. I wish God gave that to me. It'd be great as a pastor especially. It'd be really helpful. But um, it's something only God ultimately knows. But... We can still look at fruitfulness. We can get an idea of it. And at the end of the, of the day, do we want to lean to more hopeful or more skeptical? I just learned for me, I'm going to lean to be a little more skeptical because of what's at stake. Am I hopeful that somebody knows Christ when they say they do? Yes. But I'm going to, I'm going to always be a little more skeptical and look for that fruit and encourage them <clears throat> because there's too much at stake to not do that. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, if you've ever wondered, we're not big fans of altar calls. Every once in a while, we'll have somebody come up and say, why don't you guys do altar calls? What's wrong with you? You know, you guys aren't good Christians. How's somebody going to get saved if you don't do an altar call? The reason I don't like to do those, and I think I'm speaking for the other pastors as well, you can give somebody the false assurance that they've met Jesus when really all that happened was they got caught up in some kind of an emotional thing, or maybe they felt guilty. You know, everybody else was going up, so they walked up, so they raised their hand or they walked forward. Well, what if that's what they're banking on? Just that, that thing alone, but nothing's really ever happened. 
And I, and I think about all these people that I've talked to that said, oh yeah, I, one time I went forward at a Billy Graham concert or, one, or uh, you know, raised my hand in a youth group. But it's like, but you have, there's no fruit. There's not been any fruit since that time. Why are you banking on that? And that's why we don't like to do that. The really cool thing is that the gospel is the power to save. When you preach the gospel, it will have its impact. And we've watched that happen. I can preach the gospel from up here and it can wreck somebody sitting out there. And I don't have to do anything but preach the gospel. That's pretty cool. I've had people walk up afterwards, not because it was a stellar sermon or anything like that, just the power of the gospel. They walk up with tears in their eyes saying, I don't know what just happened, but something changed in me. Well, I know exactly what happened. You were born from above. You heard the words of life, and, and, and it, was, it impacted you because the gospel brings life where it didn't exist before. That is an unmistakable thing when it happens. So I saw this, this quote. I think it was from the Preaching the Word commentary. I didn't write down the source, but it's not me. That's the important part. <laughs> it said this, The true test of discipleship is not whether or not one received the gospel with joy at some dateable moment in history. The true test of discipleship is whether or not one picks up his cross and follows Jesus. Not for one day, or two weeks, or three months, or four years, but until Jesus calls him home. The true Christian is not like a cut flower that a husband gives his wife, a flower quite beautiful and alive for a week, but quite repulsive and dead after the unrelenting sun has beaten on it for a month. And so that's what we're looking for. Like I said, fruitfulness over time. Now, I want to talk for just a minute about the responsibility of the sower. Because as I just pointed out, we as Christians have been asked to scatter seeds. We're not responsible for what happens to those seeds afterwards. Of course, we can pray, we can encourage, you know, we can throw more seeds, but it's not up to us to, to make sure those seeds sink in. We can't do that. We just need to drop them, right? Um, this is something I've had to learn as a pastor. I can't fix somebody. I can't change their heart. I can't make them receive things. I wish I could. I would love that ability, but God hasn't given it to me. So I can lead a person to truth, but I can't make them believe, and I can't make them obey. I've tried over and over again. I I can't do it. But what we can do is this. We can preach an accurate gospel. Okay? Because this is what I find happening so much. People will come to, to somebody else and say, hey, Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And they think that they've just preached the gospel to somebody. And you haven't. You've just set them up for soil two and three. Did you see that? The two things that Jesus just said will drive people away. You've just said, come to Jesus and all your problems. This is why I hate the prosperity gospel. It's evil. It's wrong. You're promising somebody that they won't have any problems and that their life will be better if they come to Jesus. And, and, and basically, Jesus just said, no, those are the two things that are going to actually, when those things hit, when they say, oh, there's still problems, oh, I don't have the best, then they walk away from me. We need to go to people and say something a little bit different. Yeah, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life if you're willing to repent from your sin and deny yourself and bow before him as Lord. There's a difference in those things. That message will sound great to a desperate sinner, by the way. It's not going to sound to some, you know, great to somebody that just is looking for a little life enhancement, but to a, to a desperate sinner that has nowhere else to turn, those are going to be words of life. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. It stuck with me over the years. He said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> I think that's just funny. But if you want a religion that will reconcile you to God and that will allow you into his kingdom to, to be able to worship him forever, 
You know, Christianity is perfect for that. That's, that's, that's going to work out great. So that's the sower. Now, I want to talk about the good soil for a minute, too, because this is really important. If you are part of the fourth soil contingent, you know, I think we all hopefully would, would say, yes, I'm part of the fourth soil. Um, would any of you ever have the audacity to go to the other soils and say, my soil is better than yours? You wouldn't, right? But do we act that way? We act that way sometimes. And it's wrong. We act as though we figured something out that they weren't able to figure out. That maybe we were smarter, maybe we were better. You know, it's possible to read passages like this and reason that you've received the word because you had a better heart or because you were more courageous you weren't worried about the persecution and stuff. I was, I was more courageous or because you were just more truly devoted to God. And, and I would caution you and say, no, you, you would be mistaken. If you're part of the fourth soil, it's because God had mercy on you. Yeah, it is. It's a gift. Ephesians 2 basically makes it perfectly clear that if there's something in this that you can boast about, you're wrong. There's nothing. Nobody will boast in heaven about what, how they got here. They will not be able to do that. It's a gift from God. So if you have received this gift, if you're part of the fourth soil, how should you be? What kind of person should you be? Humble, right? Charitable. I wish more Christians were charitable and kind. I see so many just ugly, mean-spirited Christians today. This should affect how we are. We should be the most grateful people on the planet. We should be telling everybody about a God who saved me, that was merciful and gracious to a sinner like me. That's how we should be. And we should actually be pretty glad that this isn't something that we have done. Because if it's all of him and none of us, it means that this is, you know, if God put a seed in your heart, it's going to last. Do you, do you understand how good this is? If, if it's not something that I earned or, or did, you know, to earn or require or something like that, if it's something God did, it means the enemy can't take it away. Nobody else can either. The enemy can't swoop in like a bird and snatch it away. It means that persecution is not going to wither it away. When hard times come, I'm not going to, you know, the sun starts beating, I'm not going to wither away because this is God in me that's done this. And it means the cares of the world won't choke it away. And this is good news. If you're one of his sheep, how secure are you? So it's just, listen to what John, in John 10, what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear that? I just, I love that. You think of Jesus' hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he doubles down. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. That's two hands. Like that's a, like a holy hand grasp and you're stuck in the middle of it. Good luck getting me out of there. Not going to happen. So praise God if you're part of the fourth soil that you're there. If you're not, or if you're not sure where you stand, or if there are people in your life right now that you're still not sure about, um, I know many of us have loved ones that maybe we thought were part of the fourth soil group at one point, and now we're not too sure where they stand. Um, continue to pray fervently for them. You know, be like that dad that won't give up on his kids that sits here on Sunday mornings and encourages us. Uh, continue to sow seeds as often as you can. Teach the word, teach the word, teach the word, preach the gospel, tell them about Jesus. Continue with that and then continue just to lovingly and humbly warn them 
of what's going to happen if they don't receive Christ. Because it's serious. They must come back to Jesus. You know what the great news is, though? What I love about our God? He's the God who will receive the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter. This is who he is. This is what he's like. So that means that there is nothing stopping you or the one you love right now from running back to him. He will receive you. It's funny how things pop up into your, your feed and stuff when you're preparing a sermon. This, this guy named Tim Counts, who I've never heard of, uh, writes for, um, for, for the gospel, maybe? I can't, I'll, I can't remember. If you want to find it, I'll tell you. But anyway, Jared Wilson's deal. He wrote this thing to his friends that have walked away and was pleading with him to come back. And it came across, and I just was like, I was kind of struck when I saw it. So for those who have walked away, this is what he would say. When Peter denied Jesus, Jesus looked at him. If you sense the Lord looking at you right now, you have two choices. You can run from the gaze of Jesus, like Adam and Eve tried to run from the eyes of God, or you can run to the gaze of Jesus and see that there is forgiveness and acceptance and restoration in his eyes. This is what Peter experienced when the resurrected Jesus came to them later, when Peter had gone back to fishing. I talked about this before. When Jesus appeared on the shore... Peter didn't hold back. Peter couldn't wait to be near Jesus again. He couldn't wait for the boat to get to the shore. Peter jumped into the water to go towards Jesus. He didn't walk on the water this time. He simply threw himself into the water to get to Jesus. I wish I could have seen this. I imagine it was just kind of like a cannonball situation. He goes on to say, that may be what repentance looks like for you, what coming back to God looks like for you, just throwing yourself towards Jesus. If you do that, I know that Jesus will be waiting for you. Jesus himself promised it and sealed it with his redeeming blood. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out or turn away. Friends, if you come back to Jesus, he will welcome you home as friends now and for eternity. I hope to see you all there. This is good. If you have any question about where you stand in this, don't leave today without finding out. Call, consider this your altar call. <laughs> Come and talk to one of us. And, and if you know of others right now that you're not sure where they're at, just ask them. Ask them, where, they, where do you see yourself in these soil parables? Where do you think you stand right now? Have that conversation. It's going to be hard. Pray about it. But maybe it'll, maybe it'll be what they need to hear to find out where they truly stand. It's one of the hardest things I've had to do with a couple of my kids to finally just admit they're not Christians. It breaks my heart. But for me to continue to pretend they are when there's no evidence that they are would be, would be worse. Yeah. Father, thank you so much for your, your word. Thank you for these parables. Thank you for the way that you minister to us through them. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy to sinners. Uh, Lord, we have received something we don't deserve. Thank you that, that it all came at the expense of your son, Jesus. Thank you for his willingness to go to the cross for sinners, to die on our behalf. Thank you that he rose victoriously and that we can have life by placing our faith in that. So Lord, um, help us to know how to, how to deal with these, these, these questions with people that we love. Help us to continue to commit them to you daily in prayer. Help us to trust in your goodness. And uh, Father, give us opportunities, we pray, to preach this wonderful gospel to everybody we can, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.